The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply with resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Visit bloomenergy.com slash theenergygang to take charge today. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. How is the grid evolving and changing? What does it mean for your business, your energy needs, your customers? Whatever your goals, look to Hitachi Energy for the right technologies to help unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, and lower carbon emissions. Visit the link in the show notes to learn more about what Hitachi Energy can do for you. This is The Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. The U.S. Department of Energy is crucial for funding, researching, and testing emerging energy tech. Now, in the Biden era, the agency is orienting itself toward deployment. How difficult is that transition? Plus, a surprising twist in the global clean energy transition. How much trouble will energy price inflation cause? And where is it happening? Jigger, do you want to dust off that microphone? <laughs> I actually did see a little bit of lint on there. I had to like take it off. It's been in the bowl for too long. Clear your throat, <laughs> stretch, get comfortable. How does it feel not having hot takes on a microphone each week? I have to say it's it's a little uncomfortable, right? Like sometimes like I wake up with something to say and I'm like, well, who the hell do I say it to? I can't tweet it <laughs> out. I can't put it on LinkedIn. I I feel so bad for your colleagues at the Department of Energy. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's mostly my wife who has to take the brunt of it. And she doesn't care about the about that topic. So she's like, oh, whatever. Well, that is Jigger Shaw, who is our longtime co-host, who you all might remember, who is now the director of the Loan Programs Office at the Department of Energy. He is the former uh, co-founder and president of Generate Capital. Really good to see you, sir. How are you? Oh, it's extraordinary. It's just so great to be back with uh, you and Catherine, of course, with Ed. It's it's fantastic. Catherine, how are you doing? Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. That's like from In the Heights. Yeah, I am I'm so thrilled. As Jigger knows, I've never forgiven him for, for leaving us. And um, <laughs> I've been making him pay the price because I've been meeting a lot with him. <laughs> Catherine Hamilton is uh, our, our co-host as well. She's the chair of 38 North Solutions. And Ed Crooks is also with us. You hear his voice regularly. He is the vice chair of the Americas at Wood Mackenzie. Ed, how are you? Hello, I'm great, thanks. And uh, likewise, very excited to be here with Jigger. Um, being a long-term fan as a listener. So great privilege to me to be on the show with you today. Let's see if you all recognize the plot of this movie. An idealistic, young, successful businessman winds up appointed to a prominent job in government. When he arrives, his idealism collides with the realities of policymaking in Washington, D.C., but he forges ahead in spite of the difficulties he faces. Catherine, what IMDb page did I pull that from? (laughs) I believe that was Mr. Shaw Goes to Washington. (laughs) That is right. So in March... Jigger left his position at Generate Capital and um, and this show to head into government service and run the loan programs office. And he has 
$40 billion in authority to back a wide range of climate technologies. And and he's been working and his team has been working on the first round of investments with those dollars. Um, so he came into that position with a lot of enthusiasm about the next wave of investments in and in commercializing climate tech. So I want to talk about sectoral approaches that he's taking, how things have been going in government. But let's start with some simple framing here. Bloomberg just came out with a profile on Ujigger, and they pulled some quotes from previous Energy Gang episodes. And they had mentioned that in a former episode, you said that the loan programs office was fundamentally broken. Months later, you came into the office. So what do you think now? Well, I mean, I, I do think that it was fundamentally broken, right? And I do think that, you know, it's really only because of Secretary Granholm's leadership and the president's leadership that they're like, we want to figure out how to fix it. We want to get it there. I mean, you know how much stuff I've said on the Energy Yang podcast back to 2013. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they nominated me for this, I think, was, you know, a big step. And I think that that, you know, fundamentally what was broken about the office before is that we were not expected to take risk, right? We were expected to keep our head down and not take risk while helping innovative companies get the the commercial debt that they needed. And I think when you, you know, hear the secretary talk about our program regularly, um, you know, she reminds people that we should be taking risk and that that that, that is the reason this, this uh, office was created and that's created the space uh, to fix the office. And so what do you mean by that? Like, why wasn't the office taking risks? And what kind of risks do you f- want to take? Or are you planning to take now? Well, we we underwrite loans um, that are pretty safe. I mean, to be clear, right, the loan programs office is not a venture capital firm, right? So we look at the principles under a loan, and we say, um, you know, how much debt can we afford to provide and what are the chances that they're going to pay us back, right? That's very similar to a commercial bank. Um, but in our case, like we actually, you know, leverage, uh, you know, more than 10,000 engineers, scientists and experts um, to validate that the, we believe this technology is going to work, right? And and sometimes it doesn't work exactly as planned, right? We had a couple of projects like uh, Tanimpah where they did, you know, um, solar concentration, and it didn't work quite as was expected, right? And some of that could be technology risk, but some of that's probably operator risk as well in the way that the plant was operated. And so those are the kinds of risks we take. And it's not that easy for them to go find another operator and go in and just fix that facility and 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 whatnot, right? And so so those risks are real, right? And the same thing's true for green hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuel or next generation high voltage DC transmission lines. I mean, there's a lot of things that can go wrong and we are making safe bets. I mean, that's why we've made money for the, the US government. But every once in a while, a project's not going to work, right? I mean, we had lots of failures, including the one that everyone talks about. But you have a bound solar, right? Um, you have Ton and Pa. You've got uh, Fisker Automotive. There's lots of deals that we've made. It's been less than a billion dollars of losses um, over, uh, right around a billion dollars of losses over a $35 billion portfolio. Um, so we've done pretty well. But you can imagine that, you know, when you have losses, people talk about it a lot. And so, Jigger, it seems that 
during uh, the Recovery Act during the Obama administration, there was a lot of interest in the LPO. A lot of great projects were funded. There was actually a quite a bit of success at the LPO. Um, but there were also a lot of companies that just didn't make it through. And I think that left people a lot of smaller startups with kind of a sour taste in their mouth. But then came ARPA-E and the ability to take much higher risk early stage companies through that process seems to have taken some of the pressure all of, off of LPO and give a place and a safe space for those companies. So what's interesting to me is how you see, and, and Stephen was sort of getting to this, what are you willing to take a risk on? But like, what is the sweet spot for the LPO? Yeah, I think that, you know, we think about things as a bridge to bankability, right? So ARPA-E comes in and a lot of times the technology isn't really proven. Like there's a high likelihood that the technology will work, which is why ARPA-E invests, but they haven't really proven it. And so we usually take stuff that's really fully proven at lab scale or, you know, whatever small pilot scale. And then we there's four stages here, right? One is first-of-a-kind deployment, right? So this is uh, mostly an applied engineering risk, right? Like, hey, you know, like, have you really engineered that plant correctly uh, now that you're scaling it up 20x from what it was before? The second thing is then EPC risk, right? So that's plants two, three, four, and five. Um, and we do those too. The third then is the learning curve, right? This is when stuff is, starts at 17 cents a kilowatt hour like solar was and then comes down to three, right? So that includes a lot of the secretary's initiatives with the Earthshot for hydrogen, the Earthshot for long duration storage. A lot of those technologies really are proven. I mean, electrolyzer technologies or the iron air battery from Form Energy, you know, I think DOE invented that back in the 70s. So, so it, it does work. The question is, can it get down in the cost curve? And then the fourth thing is slightly more ambiguous, which is how do you get banks to fully accept the technology? There's a lot of technologies that have come down in cost, but the banks are still like, uh, do I really need to process a fuel cell deal? Do I need to really process one of these deals? And we play a critical role there too, to get people to the other side, which is trillion dollar scale, right? And I think we all have to be honest with ourselves, right? That like, if if we're going to make a dent in the president's goals in 2035 for electricity and in 2050 for the rest of the economy, like $100 billion scale is the only thing that matters, right? Like if if you don't get a sector to $100 billion scale, there's no way it's going to be part of the final solution. Yeah, so I had a question really following on from Catherine's point about where you see the greatest opportunities, what are the sweet spots for you? What about across different technologies? You mentioned green hydrogen, you mentioned uh, long duration storage potentially as another attractive opportunity. Do you have feelings about which are the most promising technologies where you can really make a significant difference? Yeah, it's a good question. I, and I guess what I would say is that we're, we don't really have a point of view, per se. Um, I have a point of view about the applications I've received and which ones I like and which ones I don't like. But in general, I would say that the people who make the determination as to which technologies are ready to go are the you know, C round, D round investors, the SPAC investors, right? And so if someone makes it through that process and has the ability to build a sustainable aviation fuel facility using the low carbon fuel standard credit program in California and has an offtake from United or Delta or somebody else, that's great. They come into the office and suddenly 
I'm in love with sustainable aviation fuels. Or if, uh, if someone says, you know, I finally have the ability to get high voltage DC lines built um, in these corridors, right? Suddenly, I think transmission's amazing, right? Or I've, you know, had some people come to me saying, we have an advanced approach to EV charging. Suddenly, I'm very interested in EV charging, right? Because it, it doesn't help at all for me to do a top-down analysis. Um, that's what a lot of the applied programs do at the Department of Energy. Uh, but it doesn't help me to do a, a top-down analysis and then say, this technology really should be taking off. Why am I not seeing applications? And then calling all the people there and then finding that the venture capital investors or others just didn't want to give them a C round or a D round, right? And if they don't want to fund them, there's nothing I can do with senior debt to complete the puzzle, right? I can maybe provide indications and say, hey, if I received a loan application from this company, it would be great, but I can't actually will something over the finish line. The equity investors have to show their interest first, and then we're then going to them and saying, uh, we're interested. I'll give you an example. Um, like, you know, small modular reactors, right, for light water reactors. This is an area where we're very interested. I have a nuclear title under Title 17. So I have $10 billion of money that could, I can only use for nuclear power that's sitting there. So I need to get applications under that. But I can't put money out the door for nuclear unless, you know, someone says, I want a nuclear plant. I want to put it at this former coal plant. I want to convert it to a nuclear plant. And you see that with the Natrium announcement in Wyoming or the X Energy announcement in Washington State that was done out of the advanced uh, nuclear program out of the Office of Nuclear Energy. But like, even if I found a white paper that said nuclear is the key to converting all coal plants to uh, you know, high uh, capacity factor, flexible baseload as per the Princeton study, I still need a bunch of people to agree with it and to say, okay, great, we're going to put the equity up, we're going to rate base this within our utility you know, integrated resource plan, and we're going to come to the loan programs office for a loan. I'm still waiting for you to announce a big investment in hybrid egg beater turbines with retractable sunflower shaped solar panels that sell energy on the blockchain. When are you going to have that strategy at DOE Jigger? Well, I don't know that I can do that one, but you know, solar freaking roadways is right around the corner. <laughs> so I can imagine uh, someone in the DOE press office with a cane that's about to come in uh-huh. to the screen and, and yank you out here. But red uh, alert. When, red <laughs> alert. <laughs> When, when I mean, are, should we expect deals? And uh, in, in, uh, when can we an- expect announcements? Yeah, I mean, we're actively processing deals. I think we've had 51 applications come into the office. We have another 30 or 40 that are actively in pre- being prepared. And we know that because they've sent us early drafts and things like that. Um, and, you know, I think we've got a couple of projects that are pretty advanced. And so we're hoping to uh, announce, uh, you know, the first couple deals out of the office. Um, and then I think we've got a huge pipeline of deals after that. So I think we're going to be super active next year. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it really is great. But I, I would say that part of the challenge here with restarting the loan programs office is really around um, everyone's comfort level. Like there isn't an ecosystem of consultants for our program. So if, if, if a company were to say to me, who should I hire to write the application for me? Like, there's nobody to really send them to. Like, even if they wanted to pay somebody like a bunch of money to write the application for them. Um, but that's different for like USDA's loan program or 
uh, you know, Tiffy or Wiffy or some of these other programs, like there are banks who actually specialize in writing that application for you. So part of what we've had to do is actually even scale up the ecosystem and say, hey, who are the consultants that are active in this space who want to represent the the companies, not just from a um, you know, bringing them through the office and helping them with the process, but also actually, you know, filling out the paperwork and doing the data rooms and all that stuff, right? A lot of companies, they're running their businesses. They want to pay a service provider to do that work. And so that ecosystem is not robust for the loan programs office, right? So that's a lot of the stuff we had to do. And then also just our team, right? Our team's made up of extraordinary people who's been there for a long time, But the first deal, you can imagine, folks are looking over their shoulder going, wait a second, am I doing this right? Doesn't this have to be the perfect deal for the first deal that comes out of the loan programs office under the Biden era? And I'm like, no, don't put that pressure on yourself. Like if it qualifies for the program, we process the loan and put it through. Yeah, I have to say, I'm super impressed with the way you're running it. It's almost like, you know, you're in a meeting and you make a suggestion and all of a sudden you're put in charge of the subcommittee that handles it. It's kind of what happened to you. Um, (laughs) But you, Jigger, you've been so accessible. I brought a ton of companies in that are all over the map on different kinds of technologies and you prepare in advance you always come with ideas um, and really crucially you come with the team members that are going to really be the Sherpas for the people who are applying and so I think that is that's a huge additive to what this program is doing and I'm I'm particularly interested in the way you're thinking broadly not just about a helping a technology, but also helping think creatively about new business models. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, in general, what I would say is that we have so many applications coming in now with 51 being received already. And a lot of what I'm doing is saying to people, we have all these experts. Like, what do they think? Uh, So we've had three, I think, uh, applications come in um, on EV you know, sort of charger rollouts. And, you know, I went to uh, the applied office, the vehicle technologies office, and they said, oh, you know, meet Jake Ward. And then Jake Ward said, hey, meet the team at NREL. And the NREL said, here's a team at Idaho National Laboratories. And then, you know, 15 people are on the phone. I'm like, this is great. We have 15 people. They're like, oh, no, no, we have 50 more people working on this behind the 15 people that are on the call. And it's extraordinary. I would say that in general... One of the things that we have um, to figure out, right, is is this business model innovation piece that you talk about. Because traditionally, the Department of Energy has been a master at technology innovation or uh, like on the electric vehicle side saying, well, where can the grid handle, um, uh, you know, d- uh, DC fast chargers or or if we had 20 million electric vehicles, how many EV chargers would we need to be able to make sure everyone was comfortable that there was an EV charger free when they needed one, right? And those don't really solve the business model problem. So I have to dig a little bit deeper. And then you find there actually are people who are experts in business model, but they're not necessarily the featured folks on the website. So I have to go dig and find those people. But like in EV chargers, for instance, there's you know advertising business models, there are pay-as-you charge business models. There are business models where some folks are building very large charging depots and then using that charging depot as a virtual power plant and bidding that capacity into the DER 
marketplace and getting paid that way, right? And so you're like, uh, whoa, that's pretty cool, right? And so, so, and I think the same thing is true around green hydrogen, right? Whether there are some applications where they're burning the hydrogen in a turbine and then selling the power to a utility company uh, as flexible baseload. And there's others who are saying, no, we're going to sell the hydrogen to higher value uh, applications like uh, fertilizer production or green chemicals production or other things, right? And 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 I've always been, it's, it's really surprising to me, and it shouldn't be because there's just so many great people at DOE, but how much expertise there is there and the fact that they've been actually working on it for 30 years. Right. And that's the weird thing for me is as somebody who actively, when I was at Generate Capital, like never bothered to pick up the phone and call DOE on any of the new applications we were evaluating. Like, I'm like, why didn't I do that? It's a free resource. You just call people up and they're like, they've been working out for 30 years and I just never bothered to do it. And so, I mean, the thing, obviously, which uh, you've got to have in your minds, presumably, at all times is. The cylindra issue. You which, said it. You said it. You were. Uh, He's we the were, one. Uh, skirting, skirting around that name, <laughs> but I said it. But I'm, I've, we've got to go there. It's uh, it's clearly the thing which still looms very large over the whole issue, right? And as you say, um, the program overall has made money. Net net, it's been uh, it's been a positive for the American taxpayer. Arguably, it has, despite the criticisms that people have got arguably it has actually played an important role in the development of clean energy in the u.s however when you have these occasional failures they can be picked up used as political cudgels the name can be put around it can be um something which really becomes a hot issue in the political debate and can be uh, used against the administration and against the program and against the whole idea of clean energy in general. How much do you think about that? Is that something which bears into your calculations and the calculations of that um, broader uh, system of decision-making as you've described it? Well, thanks, Ed. I'd already forgotten about it, but now that you bring it up, you know, <laughs> nightmares all over again. Um, no, I mean, so I guess what I would say to you is that um, I think that the specter of Solyndra is far more hype than real, um, you know, going into our Halloween weekend here. Um, I think that in general, look, the, the office had 15 full-time employees when that loan was approved, right? Today, the office is 165 people who work here. A lot of process and procedures have been put in place. And the way in which we underwrite loans is far closer to what a commercial bank would do. And in fact, when I talk to big money center banks today, they say, look, Jigger, we love looking over your shoulder because you guys underwrite these loans so well that we actually want to copy that for like, you know, projects six, seven, and eight, when we feel comfortable doing it. And I think you see that in the data, right? So while Solyndra was one of the first loans that we put out the door uh, under the Obama administration um, in 2009, um, you know, Bound Solar, Fisker, Tonempah, other deals have failed since Solyndra. And you haven't seen the level of blowback because I think what we've been recognized for is all the improvement that we've made in the processes and procedures. And so that when a loan gets through our office, I think people now recognize, hey, they actually did their best job to really like figure out exactly how you would do this in the commercial 
banking sector, and they tried to follow best practice. And so I think, I think in general, um, you know, data shows that you know after Solyndra, like the amount of blowback that we've gotten for deals that have gone sideways since then has been far lower. And you know, and I think, and I think there's also some benefit from the air cover that we're being given by the secretary, where the secretary says regularly. Look, you got to take a lot of swings at bat. And, you know, there are many people who now accuse us of not having taken enough risk in the program. So I think that, you know, I think we're in a better, a much better situation now. And one of the huge successes that this program have has had that Jigger now oversees is the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which supported Tesla. And that was enormous. That created basically our EV market in this country. And I'm super excited because in the pending infrastructure bill, it that program is going to get opened up not just for light duty vehicles, but also medium and heavy duty vehicles, trains, maritime vessels, aviation, Hyperloop. Super exciting that um, you're going to be able to to look at a lot of other sectors that have been hard to decarbonize, but in the last 10 years have had a lot of really good ideas and good technologies developed. What have you learned about the sausage making process then about um, the alignment between industry and the administration? and where they differ? And what what are the things that have surprised you or that have been most difficult as you've entered this job and gotten more familiar with how it works? Like, I, I mean, I would say that in general, um, you know, I think you guys all know me, like I'm a pretty blunt person. It's not very easy for me to change my stripes at this point in my career. Um, and that has been received very well within the government. I think in general, um, you know, everyone I interact with likes the plain spoken way that we conduct business here. Um, and I do think that uh, the secretary has had a huge imprint on uh, the Department of Energy. Remember, like, a lot of the 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 funding bills, right, um, from Congress to the Department of Energy for years has said, you are not allowed to spend this money on commercialization, right? So, the lot of the signals that were being spent sent to the the people who work at the Department of Energy has been like focus on R and D, right? This secretary has come in and said deploy, deploy, deploy. And I think when you think about um, the pivot that 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 you know like it, you know sort of foreshadows, like it's it's a pretty large pivot. And the fact that everyone has really been game for it and has risen to the occasion shouldn't have surprised me at all. But, you know, it has happened and it's been pretty amazing to watch. I'd say the, the one thing that 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 I have found, um, you know, fairly revealing um, is that a lot of the people in government uh, don't trust their instincts on commercialization. And so the Loan Programs Office has played a pretty pivotal role around um, around putting things forward, right? writing the first draft, like saying the first thing. And then you find that the expertise actually has been there all along. And people are willing to edit your draft and then add their two cents and bring the whole of government expertise to the table to make that uh, commercialization strategy far more successful. But I think people have been um, reticent to write the first draft. And so I think that that has been something that we have really, I think, brought to the table, which has been good. Um, and as a result, I think there's just a tremendous amount of movement across sectors that have, you know, languished, I would say, in the past. 
one final question from me, which is, what does success look like for you? Let's say three years time. I mean, who knows? I don't want to prejudge it. How long you're going to be there? But let's say, let's say you're back on the show in three years time talking about what you've achieved. Um, what would you be talking about to feel proud? Like I did a really good job there. Yeah. Um, I've thought about this because I've been asked this question before by a couple of people and I don't know that I've had a good answer. So let me try again. <laughs> I, you know, what I'd say is that first and foremost, I think what's on my mind is that someone says, this process is easier, right? I don't know that I can make it easy, but it's easier, it's not daunting, it's understandable, and I want to use it, right? That's a big deal, right? There are a lot of entrepreneurs who I think qualify for our office who are like, oh, there's no way that we can fill out all that government paperwork and get through that process and do that thing. They're so daunted by it that they they won't even check it out to see whether it's really daunting or not. And I think that we are making really good progress around changing the reputation of the office so that people think, huh, this is here to serve me. I should use it. I'm a taxpayer. <laughs> like This is exactly what I should be doing, right? I think that you know, secondary goals that I have um, and that we have is really infusing the rest of the Department of Energy, which is happening already because of the Secretary's leadership, but with this commercial understanding, like how do we work together across all of the th different organs, not only of the Department of Energy, but also like USDA does loans in this area, or the Department of Transportation is going to manage a lot of the uh, grant programs, or, you know, HUD, uh, you know, is doing a lot of work on buildings, right? Or uh, FEMA, right? Who has all this money that they put out the door every time there's a disaster, which unfortunately is happening more often. And they're not necessarily optimizing for infrastructure that is, you know, um, more climate friendly uh, to put in. And and so a lot of the conversations that we're having um, are channeling our applicants and their voice um, as we're part of all these interagency meetings, like we're representing their ideas, their perspectives, their new business models, and introducing them um, to the rest of government, which is causing the rest of government to go, what? We have that expertise within government? Like, we should call you guys more often. You guys actually have a lot of insights that would help us do these policies better and make them more accessible to others. And so so that's another secondary benefit that I'd love to see um, you know, come out of the office. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is accelerating the hydrogen economy. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of clean energy sources like concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear to generate green hydrogen at scale. It's also partnering with industry leaders to produce that green hydrogen. Its pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars, and it's uniquely designed to decarbonize the world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator or as an electrolyzer. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. The energy gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. Energy access and resilience is needed everywhere. Around the globe, from the frozen Arctic to the heat of the Australian desert, Hitachi Energy has been delivering innovative grid-edge solutions for 30 years. Today, Hitachi's technologies can improve resilience and efficiency, integrate solar or wind to reach sustainability goals, and lower energy costs. It's all possible with grid-edge solutions from Hitachi Energy. Learn more about stacking value and new services to utilize battery storage 
at the link in the show notes. All right, let's round out the second half of the show. Um, we're going to talk about the wacky changes in energy markets around the world. This is a continuation of our conversation last week when we focused mostly on Europe. Um, but around the world, after COVID struck, we saw these extreme drops in consumption of oil, gas, and coal. And the, the drop in liquid fuels consumption sent oil prices into negative territory at one point. And as demand for electricity fell, least cost options like renewables took up a greater share of the grid mix. And now, during this strange and uneven economic recovery, we're seeing supply disruptions, shifts in consumer behavior, and it's also causing, causing a massive swing in fossil fuel prices around the world. It's happening everywhere. In America, natural gas prices are 110% higher than they were last year. Oil prices are 65% higher. Gasoline prices have risen by more than a dollar per gallon in the last year. Across Asia, Australia, Europe, natural gas prices and oil prices are at three-year highs. Coal consumption is on the upswing. In fact, in, in China, demand is outstripping coal supplies, causing blackouts. Uh, inflation is going to continue, particularly if it's a, it's a really bad winter in Europe and America. And, uh, you know, outlets like the Wall Street Journal and The Economist are weighing in, saying that renewables cannot fill in the gap, that this is the first big scare of the green era. That's according to The Economist. And um, I want to broaden our discussion from last week to look at global dynamics. So, uh, look, I think this is going to be, you know, I think Jigger has to be careful about what he says here. So maybe we'll just start start with you, Jigger, if there's anything you want to weigh in on related to this subject, uh, and then we'll let you push the red button if if you're uh, if you're you're going outside your lane here in government. <laughs> well, I think that. Do you want to comment on what's going on here at, at broadly? Well, I think there's a there's a couple of things that come out of the applications that we've received um, in the loan programs office. So. A couple things. One is is that uh, when you think about the diversity of technologies that we have to offer, my sense is is that for a long time renewables was wind and solar, and I think when you think about a lot of the things that the governments are thinking differently about, I mean California is putting out a thousand megawatt RFP for geothermal. Uh, you know the state of Texas is completely redoing their um, you know sort of uh, process to try to take it take advantage of the lessons learned in some of these places. I think you've got uh, countries around the world, including states in the U.S., that have banned internal combustion engines as of X date. And so I think part of this is recognizing that um, we do have a lot of technologies, right? The International Energy Agency has highlighted 432 of them, I think, on their website within 40 categories. And and, you know, I think you even saw, you know, uh, the French president, Macron, you know, talk about uh, his doubling down on nuclear. And I think that the support for nuclear power in the poll and the polling that happened after his speech went up 17 points. Um, and so I think when you think about the art of the possible, uh, my sense is, is that wind and solar did their job. They disrupted the existing status quo to the point where th people were not like completely um, thinking, well, you know, the, the incumbents will always get their way and they'll always win. And now you see that from stock market 
you know, uh, SPACs to other things, the equity investors are now thinking in a unique way, based on all the disruption that's happened during COVID, that like these technologies actually deserve a shot. So Ed, let's broaden this globally. I mean, electricity shortages in Singapore, blackouts in provinces around China, a surge in coal consumption in India and China, demand for coal in those countries outstripping supply, fuel poverty in Europe, like real genuine concerns about people being able to pay their energy bills, agricultural operations being disrupted because fertilizer production is being slashed. Uh, And then here in the U.S., higher gas prices and some political tensions around what to do um, uh, around around gas prices. So this is like having impacts everywhere. What do you make of this? what, What is your best assessment of, of what's happening. And we can break it down sector by sector um, in terms of type of fuel. Uh, but help us understand this extraordinarily complicated situation. Yeah, and I will. I think it's a good point about breaking it down by different types of fuel because definitely the types of fuel are a little bit different. But I'm going to do that in a moment before just giving the biggest possible picture, which is that what's going on is strong recovery in energy demand globally after the pandemic, as you say, uh, demand is really bouncing back all over the world, uh, and supply has not been keeping up. And that's been true really for, for all kinds of fuel. Um, slightly different factors in gas and coal, which are kind of linked because they're both going to power generation. Coal, a big issue with supply there, has been flooding around the world. There's been kind of a perfect storm of um, disruptions to coal supply and important producers, Indonesia, China, Australia, several others have been hit by that. Um, Gas production has also been hit in quite a lot of places. Gas, uh, particularly in Europe, has been weak in the UK, uh, and supplies coming out of Norway have been uh, not been strong. And also, we've had weak power production in a lot of places, Partly um, hydropower has been hit by droughts, so we're having floods in some places, droughts in others. Um, very likely, I think, you could draw a link between that and climate change and changing patterns of precipitation around the world. But Brazil's been very hard hit in terms of its hydropower. The level in, uh, in dams in Brazil is at its lowest level for 91 years. Chile also hit hard on the hydropower front. And also we've had for Somewhat mysterious reasons, and people are still trying to dig into what's been going on there, but uh, wind generation in Europe, particularly in Northern Europe, particularly in the UK and in Germany, has been very disappointing, well down from last year's levels, um, still a bit higher than it was in 2019, and it's kind of hard to know whether this is just uh, a kind of one freak year we've been having or whether there's some kind of pattern developing here about wind output being disappointing. That's definitely going to be something to watch. Anyway, but so essentially what's happened is all of these different factors have come together and they have been conspiring to drive up prices for both gas and coal to very high levels. And you are getting this response where a lot of countries are saying we need to step up production. And you've seen what, what's been happening in China, where the Chinese government has said we need to get hold of fuel at all costs, you know, whatever it takes, get us more fuel. And they've been ordering their coal mines, for instance, to produce as much coal as they can possibly produce. And so kind of constraints and restrictions on coal mines that were put in as part of their climate strategy um, earlier this year and in earlier years are now being unwound because they're uh, desperate for energy from wherever they can get it. So that's that's going on in in, uh, in gas and coal. Slightly different issue in oil, where one of the big issues in oil still is we've got a lot of uh, production being taken off the market by the OPEC plus countries, so Russia, Saudi Arabia, other OPEC members and their allies. There's still probably about 4 million or more barrels of oil 
kept off the market by those countries. And that's because essentially they've been wanting to support prices and they're very happy to see prices rise to these kind of levels, apparently, and they're prepared to kind of let that go and not increase production, even though they could do. And one more thing just to throw in on the oil price is the issue with some producers, particularly in the US, the shale industry, the tidal industry here, and some other oil producers around the world, is there does seem to be pressure on them from their investors not to sink too much money into drilling new holes in the ground, uh, pumping out more oil. The um, message we get very clearly from companies really across the oil industry, particularly in the US, is that what investors want to see is uh, cash being returned to them. They want companies to generate free cash flow and pay it back to shareholders in dividends or in share buybacks. They don't want all that money being put into increased production. And so that's why, although you're seeing a little bit of a response in the US oil industry, uh, basically production is responding in only a very sluggish way, despite prices being very high and apparently some really great opportunities for people to make money by producing more oil. It's like I'm listening to this and it's stupefying. It's like every possible thing that could go wrong has gone wrong, which is, I guess, very appropriate for the last two years of our lives. But um, it, it really is remarkable just how many factors are at play in the wrong direction. So, so Catherine, this kind of price shock inevitably encourages countries to dig into policy that's going to support more fossil fuel consumption. India is clamoring to get more coal. China is 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 burning a ton more coal because of gas prices. Um, we're going to see subsidies across Europe, uh, like a conversation about fuel subsidies and you know release of oil from the strategic petroleum reserve here in the United States. Um, there's just there's inevitably this tide of pro incumbent uh, policies which inevitably benefit fossil fuels. So what do you expect? What do you think might happen? You mentioned this and you talked a little bit about IEA's take on this last last podcast and, and we mostly focus on Europe, but how worried are you about this? Yeah, so I've spoken with a few folks. Um, Colin Fenton was one of those. He's chairman of commodities for Tudor Pickering and Holt. And you know he talked a lot about the the physical attributes the fact that you have to physically settle in the oil markets and so it's you know it's not just about you know speculation is tough cuz then you actually either have to receive or deliver what you're speculating on and that's caused a lot of problems and i think with covid it's been a you mentioned an uneven recovery and a lot of that has to do with policy are you opening up to you know everybody being free and creating demand back up, you know, sending demand back up again, that is a huge, makes a huge difference in what you're using and what the economic recovery looks like. And he said, you know, there's, there's this backup. So there's, there's everything is kind of tightening because you have all these logistics issues um, about getting things where they need to go and in different ways, unevenly, depending on where you are. But it does look like, you know, if, if you look at the ESG targets, two thirds of S&P 500 energy companies have carbon neutral goals. Three quarters of energy CEOs are tied to metrics on ESG goals. And, um, you know, 
and they're looking at, you know, how do we get more shareholder returns? And so there's always this like tightening before a transition. Another thing we need to keep in mind is that there was a lot of infrastructure damage during Hurricane Ida back in September. So it took a long time for that industry to come back. But of course, the last thing that you want is to make it so that we have to double down on that and become reactionary. And there are a few things he said that are going to be, you know, just things we have to deal with. One is monetary policy. There's inflation. I, uh, He and I were comparing stories about going apple picking and how much apples cost right now. Like you used to be able to spend five bucks and get a big bag. And I spent like 25 bucks and got enough to make a pie. I mean, it was it was crazy. And he said, this is all goods and services right now. It's not just the oil and gas industry, but it's everybody. So there is this inflation that's out there now. And there's also um, fiscal pressures, of course, as a result of COVID and what it's done to the economies. There are trade tensions. This is a global market, but there's still trade tensions based on who has what and who can supply what. Um, and then all these supply chain backups certainly don't help. But one thing we, that you don't want to do is if you're trying to invest in cleaner, better, efficient systems is to like have policies that are reactionary and immediately start falling back on those systems that created volatility in the first place. So we really have to be careful about it. We have to think about the fuel side and then we also have to think about the other side of hydrocarbons that provides all the materials that we use every day and try to... F- think about how are we going to transition in a way that provides security and provides certainty and a path to a transition rather than going backwards. Um, and I have not heard anybody in Europe yet, other than the fossil lobby community, saying that they don't want to keep moving forward on the economic recovery for green technology. I mean, we have to keep going forward. Um, and, and that checks a lot of boxes and solves for a lot of issues. Ed, how much does this confuse the narrative? I mean, we I asked this question last time, but like so much has changed since the last week. And we've also seen in the press now prominent publications talking about how this should let uh, make us question the clean energy transition or question the role of renewable energies, energy in the global energy economy. How do you think this starts to percolate around into media perceptions, public perceptions and therefore policymaking? I think it's going to be very significant. I think we can see that people already are suffering from dramatic rises in fuel costs in many parts of the world, sometimes even just uh, availability of fuel. And uh, winter is not yet on us. Um, I think there are um, some pretty credible warnings that it could be a very difficult winter, for instance, in Europe. I think on our calculations, if you look at um, the outlook for gas supplies in Europe, as long as it's not a particularly cold winter, Europe will be fine. But if it is an unusually cold winter, Europe faces a very real risk of running out of gas. And so, you know, that's the kind of prospect which should really be alarming everyone in Europe right now and is definitely something that people have got to be concerned about. And when you get those kind of pressures on people, when fuel costs rise, when... um the lights can't be kept on, then you always get enormous pressure on governments. That's the one thing that people really want uh, governments to be able to uh, ensure they can do is guarantee fuel supplies. So I think then there is the strong prospect of some pretty uh, strong political reactions in terms of uh, trying to make sure that those fossil fuel supplies can be maintained. And I think we probably will see some of those things that that Catherine was talking about in terms of uh, a reaction against 
the push for low carbon energy. I think, I mean, to me, what it really goes to, and I've talked about this before, but I think this is absolutely demonstrating it right now, is the issue of, of the demand side and the supply side for energy, that it feels like still we have been quite um, effective in restricting the supply side in terms of uh, supplies of oil, gas, and coal in various ways, but not effective enough, clearly, in restricting the demand and shifting the demand into other areas and making sure that people have EVs, people have electric heating, heat pumps, whatever it might be. Um, people have uh, other ways to meet the demand for energy. People have insulation, people have energy-efficient appliances, etc., etc. All of those kind of things which work on the demand side really need to be prioritized, I think, more than they are, or we need to have more effort in terms of developing alternative low-carbon energy supplies and obviously some of the things that uh, Jigger is working on now and, and the technologies you've been talking about which are kind of promising, but they're not right here, right now, and not available immediately, and they really need to be here as soon as we can get them. And that seems to me the the recipe for a really difficult situation and for the problems we're seeing now and potentially even worse problems if you would restrict the supply side without also changing the demand side. And so I think this has been a a very important warning about the energy transition, about how it has to be managed that you do have to uh, be really careful in how you manage it and you do have to think about that balance of supply and demand very carefully. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And, and, and bringing this back to real world consequences, here in America, for example, the latest reporting, and I want to get your take on this, Catherine, the latest reporting is that the the White House and lawmakers are scrambling to get a new reconciliation package together that does not include a clean energy standard because uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said he will not vote for it. And he also said in the last week that we're in the middle of an energy crisis to explain his opposition to that policy. And so there, uh, you know, uh, someone like Senator Manchin can look at what is happening around the world and here in the U.S. and say and it gives him cover for, to, to not actually act. And I, I wonder how you feel about this, how this is feeding into those politics, Catherine. Yeah, it was disheartening to have him say that about the clean electricity um, performance plan. I I could still see something happening where it's more carrots and no sticks. Um, but the instructions that the budget resolution for which Senator Manchin voted. And the instructions to his committee included almost $200 billion, and about $150 billion was kind of pegged to the CEPP. But he, there also are instructions to do weatherization, electrification, domestic manufacturing of clean energy, federal procurement of energy efficiency, um, climate research, hard rock mining issues, Department of Interior programs. There were just lots and lots of other things in his purview. There are tax credits, a big package of clean energy tax credits. There are um, Environment Public Works Committee has a bunch of electric vehicle pieces as well as the accelerator, the National Green Bank. And then there are also regulatory things that the president can do. Certainly they're not as you know durable as a solution that you would get passed in Congress, but he can make regulatory rulemakings through the 
the Environmental Protection Protection Agency. So I think we'll still be able to get a lot done. I mean, this is a big chance to do something that will make a difference. I really want to see all of this pass. I really want to see the CEPP pass. Um, but even if it doesn't, I feel like we'll still be putting things in place that are going to not only help economic recovery, create jobs, bring bring jobs to the U.S., but also really make a dent in climate. So, Ed, broadly, how do you think this is going to, is it going to play out? What, should, what are you going to keep your eyes on over the coming months and year? So I think the next few months are going to be absolutely crucial. We're going to be keeping a very close eye on this coming winter um, in Europe and North America and North Asia, because um, I think that's going to be very significant in determining determining what impact this uh, energy crisis has on people and then uh, what the political fallout from that is. I think, to be positive about it, I think it's been a good reminder of some of the issues here. It's been a good reminder of... Um, some of the issues in the energy transition and things that were going to hit us at some point um, just because of uh, the way the industry goes through cycles, because of uh, the way that weather and unexpected shocks can hit you. So at least now I guess we can say we are prepared for this. We're going to learn an enormous amount through this crisis and we will be able to work on making the energy system stronger and more resilient at the same time that we make it lower carbon. And so, as I say, a lot of lessons are going to be learned. It's important that we do learn from them. It's an opportunity as well as a problem, and it's important we learn from it in the right ways. Great place to end it. And Jigger, does your tongue hurt from biting it during this segment? <laughs> the only thing I would say is like, you know, I'll remind you that we had an energy crisis in 2001 in California that led to an extraordinary diversification into other electricity generation sources. We had $147 oil prices in 2008 that, or 2007, 2008 that caused a tremendous shift in the way that investors invested. And so there's really no reason to believe that this uh, set of circumstances would cause any different outcome than the previous two did. Well, we've got four free electrons to get through, so let's do it. And I, I think we'll hand it over to you for your free electron jigger. Well, I think, you know, from my, my free electron, uh, one small one and then one big one, just because, you oh, know, come that's on, we can't we do, do two a piece with four people. <laughs> Don't worry, I only have one. I've got to, I've got to congrat. Congratulate uh, Gil Quinones for his move from NIPA over to ComEd. Uh, I think it's a huge move for him. And uh, as somebody who's been leading the way for a long time, I think that's going to bring a lot of good, you know, fresh thinking over there to ComEd. But my free electron is really around new battery chemistries. I think that in the solar world, we all sort of fixated on the dominance of crystalline solar and then, you know, and then uh, the success of cadmium telluride. But like, I think when you look at the battery world, there's been a tremendous focus on lithium ion batteries. And I think when you look at the most recent SPACs and some of the supply shortages and some of the other things, you're seeing a huge opening for iron flow batteries, vanadium redox batteries, iron air batteries, and many other chemistries, because 
it's actually the easiest way to deploy stuff next year because a lot of lithium-ion chemistries are sold out through 2024. So I think when you think about the like where the dominance is going to come from in battery storage, my sense is, is that while lithium is going to play a big role in the automotive sector and the utility-scale battery sector, you're seeing a huge diversification um, you know, playing out in the marketplace. Hmm. Catherine? Yeah, so our last segment, we talked a lot about what needed to happen. And I think one thing we have to keep doing is electrification. And I'm going through an electrification personal nightmare of my own. It's actually not a nightmare. It's a dream. My dream is to electrify my home. And the way I'm doing it is as things go bad, I replace them with all electric. So the first thing that happened was my clothes dryer, glass gas clothes dryer went bad. We replaced it, same price. It was great with a super efficient electric one. It did cost a couple hundred bucks to cap off the gas. So that was like an added cost. But I just got through yesterday and actually it's not completely done. Um, One of my furnaces, I have two zones in my home and one of the furnaces went bad. It was gas. And so I said, I want to replace this with a heat pump system. And first of all, like the pushback you get from contractors who just say, why on earth would you do that? That seems insane. Um, And finally finding one that was like, here's what, you know, here's what we need to do. Here's what we want to put in. Yes, it's going to cost more than just replacing it with a new gas furnace, but like, that's what you want. We also had to upgrade our electrical panel, um, which is probably good because we got an EV and we probably need more space on it anyway. But my thought is through all of this, we have to make this easier and cheaper for people to do because I can do this because I'm an energy dork and we've set aside you know, resources to make sure that we can electrify and we want to live that way. But in order to get people to do this, you're going to have to create some really good incentives or at least some good education, and especially on the contractor side. So luckily, Nate the House Whisperer was really kind to me, and he has so many good resources available so I could ask the right questions. But um, it's going to be it's going to be a long process. It'll be a few more years before the next zone goes, but you'll probably hear about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, speaking of, uh, of of the contractor problem, we finally closed on a on a house and we're rewiring the whole house and we had some issues with electrical, but I've been telling all the contractors that we're setting the house up to fully electrify it. And even the electrician was like, do you really want to do that? Do you re- <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, and you're going to get a lot of work through it. So uh, <laughs> I was just shocked that like even he was questioning that decision. So yes, we have a lot of work to do for till this filters down through the through all the contractors. Well, one of the big uh, innovations that's coming out that could help uh, people on this area is the smart panels. So there's a whole bunch of smart demand response panels where you don't have to improve your service from 100 amp to 200 amp anymore. You can leave it at 100 amp and it'll actually do the demand response within your panel to make sure you never exceed 100 amps. And so I think Span.io, I think, is releasing their new offering there at the end of the month. And there's like, you know, Schneider Electric and many others that are doing that. But I think, I think that, I think you're right. Some of this stuff will get easier, but it's uh, hard to educate the contractors on what's available. Yep. Ed, lay it on us. What's your free electron? 
Oh, well, you see, what mine was going to be was talking about heat pumps. <laughs> this is, um, so, uh, I teed you is, up. They were all quite gel. Quite this a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. So, because um, we're thinking about buying our first heat pump, and we actually went round to friends for a party on Saturday. And, of course, what else do you do uh, when you go to a party? You spend the evening talking about heat pumps. So we had a – they. so the, the, the friends we were visiting, they got heat pumps, absolutely love them. We're talking about all the advantages of them. We had a, a thorough demo and everything and so that was great and really useful to see how that works has to be said though to Catherine to your point about um uh, needing to be an expert um the uh the guy we were visiting he's actually a professor of engineering and indeed a specialist in sustainable energy so again it is that thing it does make that point i think which is that if you're trying to uh as a lay person uh, see the advantages of these and, and get them installed. It's not so easy. I just wanted to throw in though the other the other um, um, if if uh, Jigger had two free electrons, I'm going to get uh, take two as well. The other one I just wanted to flag is a fantastic piece uh, in the Financial Times by Morgan Bazilian, who you may know, who's a uh, an energy professor, a very brilliant professor at Colorado School of Mines, talking about COP26. COP26 now the climate talks coming up very soon uh, in the first two weeks of November. And he has a proposal for making uh, the COP great again by stripping away all the kind of the showbiz and the razzmatazz and the celebrities and the top-level politicians and the Queen of England, uh, or, sorry, I beg her pardon, the Queen of the United Kingdom, I should say, who's going to be uh, at this uh, event in Scotland. And, um, you know, he's arguing we should get it back to basics and make it much more of a kind of a working meeting. And he thinks there'd be more chance of making real progress there. I'm not sure if that's right. I feel like it's a good piece. It's well argued. I still wonder if you need a bit of the showbiz and the razzmatazz just to kind of get it on the political agenda. Otherwise, the whole issue would be ignored completely. And I think maybe uh, uh, the Queen going to COP26 is kind of a good idea, in fact. Driving, I hope, that car with f- filled with wine and cheese that runs on wine and cheese, and, <laughs> as you and mentioned exactly, last week. Exactly, on driving the wine and cheese car, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing that that's great uh well speaking of food i'll end on a mention of meat alternatives there are a bunch of questions now from environmental groups and this is filtered into press reporting about um the emissions profile of companies like impossible foods and beyond meat they do not disclose their emissions and of course there are a lot of emissions associated with agriculture you know the cultivation of soy um, uh, the the water use associated with processing the meat alternatives and both companies have failed to disclose their emissions and now they're they're coming under fire because they are you know actively selling their products as much better for the environment. I personally love both of these products. Um, I'm what you'd consider an opportunitarian, so I basically like eat whatever is in front of me. I more than anything, I hate food waste. So you know, we we have a pretty low meat diet in our house. But if I go to someone's house or you know, if if I have food around me, I'll pretty much eat whatever it is. But we eat a lot of these meat alternatives in our house. Um, the the bulk and it. I have no. I don't really fetishize meat. Like I don't. I don't. I just want good food. So I don't like care just, uh, that something. Just moose. Yeah, just, just moose. <laughs> I don't Didn't understand. You have like an old... Oh, elk. Yeah. Elk. elk. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Dog yeah. elk. That's it. Was meant for dog consumption. We had like t- twenty twenty five pounds of elk Grizzly. that I that I ate. That was meant for dog consumption. My dog got allergic, and I ate 
all the oh, dog gosh. elk throughout COVID. Anyway, th- but the, the, uh, I really love these products, but I've been noticing a lot more criticisms about their environmental impact, and we just don't know. And so, like, clearly, you're reducing your meat consumption, you're having an impact, but we don't know by how much. And this carbon labeling, this carbon transparency piece is hitting every product. And I think it's an important trend to watch as companies decide, are they going to disclose this or not? So wait, are we going back to Morningstar? (gasps) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was when I first became a vegetarian for sure. Back in the Morningstar days. (laughs) Oh, well, Jigger, so good to see you. Really, thanks for taking the time to to uh, come back here. My pleasure. It was always uh, it's always been fun, but it's also very enlightening. I find that like I miss Catherine's extraordinary preparation uh, <laughs> in everything that she does. She's always got like notes and people that she's interviewed for for the podcast. It's truly impressive. Ed, thanks for thanks for being here as always. This was fun. Well, thank you. Great for having me on and great to get get a chance to talk to you. Catherine, you can throw your notes away now. (laughs) (laughs) With Catherine Hamilton, Ed Crooks, Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, weekly conversations on the future of energy. Hit us all up on Twitter if you want to suggest show ideas or comment on this show. And thank you so much for being here. We'll catch you next week.